For it is by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 Welcome to Grace Bond Ministries. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, this is the, the video I've been talking about for the past week. I'm super excited about this. Um, this is one of the first videos where I've really gotten to uh, dive deep into some theology and and uh, not only that, some <laughs> some pretty uh, debatable, pretty uh, highly highly controversial theology among Christians. That's uh, so how I want to start this off, though. I, want, I do want to make sure we all understand that uh, Calvinism Arminianism debate is is among Christians. Uh, even a five point Arminian and a five point Calvinist can both be Christians. Uh, I believe both are wrong, but uh, both of them could be Christians, uh, and that's that's really important. Uh, Austin, went, Austin's going to join me here in a second. Austin, when you get on, just uh, say hey or something so I know you're on. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk about Calvinism. We're not. I mean, we're all, we're not going to get too far into it. You know, uh, there's a ton of things that could be discussed. I mean, there, there's debates that last two, three hours, and uh, and and even in those two, three hour debates, there he is. And even in those two or three hour debates. Um, they they still don't cover hardly all any anywhere close to the whole thing. Uh, let me go ahead and add Austin in. Well, it's weird. Hey Austin, is it letting you uh, request to join or anything? Ah, there we go. Hey. hey bro. Sorry, I didn't. Uh, it didn't make me do that last time. Last time I just added him in, so that was weird. Yeah, I was like, "How do I get in?" But <laughs> figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyways, I was just explaining how uh, you can be a five-point Calvinist, five-point Arminian, and both still be Christians. Uh, I was I was also talking about you know we there's I mean there's plenty of debates on Facebook, so if this spikes anybody's interest and you want to watch some debates. Uh, there's plenty of good ones out there. Oh uh, yeah, I know. I know Brown and Whites was a really good one. Uh, Olson and and uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Michael Horton. Olson and Horton, yeah, that was a good one. But there's a few good ones out there. Uh, but like I said, those those debates go two or three hours, and they hardly cover anything. So, uh, yep. and we're so we're just going to briefly cover a few passages and a few other things uh, of, of, about Calvinism, why we think it's not biblical. Uh, why we think it it uh, just ultimately doesn't make sense, and uh, we may even get into why it it uh, it actually hurts hurts the church more than than it helps. Uh, so, before we get started, though, I'm uh, Austin. Introduce yourself because I probably got a few people that have no idea who you are. Right, right. Uh, so my name is Austin Pounds. I am an old friend of Jonathan's. Uh, we went to undergrad together, Britton Parker. Um, both in the Christian Studies Department, um, 
I'm currently a seminary student at Asbury Theological Seminary, trying to get my MDiv, trying to get ready for going into a PhD. So, uh, yeah, that's me right now. <laughs> All right. Uh, also, just a little shout out if you're watching this on YouTube, watch this after the fact. Uh, like uh, Grace, Bond Ministry, Grace Bond Ministries on Facebook. Uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. And I plan on doing much more of this and, and might actually have a full-on debate here within the next few months or so. Um, but anyways, so let's go ahead and get started. We don't have much time. Our goal is to try to keep this around 30 minutes. And we're about four minutes in <laughs> already. So Very um, noble goal. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> we're going to try to cover a 2,000-year debate in 30 minutes. It but, sounds about right. <laughs> um. So why don't you go ahead and start off, because we both have two passages we're going to look at, uh, some, of, some of which are, uh, well, a couple of these passages are for Calvinism, uh, you know, something like that. Some, most of these passages that we're going to start with, though, are, are uh, we think, passages that uh, disprove Calvinism, uh, kind of easily, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but we also want to make sure, too, before we start, this is, this is an important thing, that that we're coming at this with humility, you know. We kind of joke around. We have Calvinist friends. We're in we're in this Calvinist group chat. You know, we talk to Calvinists. We're we're not. It's not like we're not friendly to them or anything like that. We just uh, just from the bottom of our heart, we think we're wrong. We're, they're uh, they're wrong. And uh, <clears throat> these are some of the reasons why. Like I said, this isn't everything. So, uh, but we're coming at this with full humility, uh, the the same kind of humility we'd call anybody else to. Uh, that you know, hey, you know, maybe we are wrong. You know, uh, we don't think we are. And we're, we're pretty confident that we're not, uh, but maybe we are. So we're going to come at this with humility as best we can yep. uh, while, still, while still calling out some of the uh, what we believe to be errors. Yeah, and I know you, you kind of said this, but I, I kind of want to just reiterate, this is a secondary issue. This is not a primary issue. Like, I fully believe that my Calvinist brothers and sisters are, you know, genuine brother and sisters in the faith, so... Just want to say that real quick because we are about to probably say some things that they're not going to like. <laughs> yeah, and also too, I don't, I don't expect this video to convince any Calvinist not to be a Calvinist today. Um, yeah. So honestly, this is just to share our thoughts and to say, you know, well, I can be an Arminian and and believe the Bible. Uh, so, anyways, uh, and also too, if you're a Calvinist, you haven't heard any of the the uh, other arguments from our side. Uh, this would be good for you too. Or, you know, if you are a Calvinist, let me know. I can, I'll get you on video. We'll, me and you will talk sometime. Uh, all right, Austin, you go ahead. Yeah, so we're going to start off in Ezekiel chapter 18. Um, we're going to start off in verse 21. Um, and Ezekiel is talking to the Israelites. So I'm going to go ahead and say that up front real quick. Uh, but verse 21 says, But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I, and this is the kicker, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn away, that he should turn from his way and live. So um, the reason why we're starting with this one is because to me this seems very clear that uh, God does not desire the death of the wicked. He desires that all should live, all should repent, all should live, all should be saved. Um, now, 
I have had debates before with Calvinists where they, they try to change this up, and they do it in two different ways. Uh, the first one, they talk about a secret will of God that, um, not a revealed will, but a secret will, where God secretly does desire all to be saved, but his revealed will will not allow that to happen because he gets the most glory from people actually dying and going to hell. Um, <laughs> I... Um, I think that's actually pretty weak, and a lot of Calvinists, a lot of other Reformed people have said this is a pretty weak argument as well, because in my, in my humble opinion, God gets glory, according to Calvinism, from both. So he could just as easily get glory from all being saved, and he would just from a few being saved. Um, with that being said, the, the more nuanced one I've heard is that since this is, this is only talking to the Israelites in this context, not to the whole world. Now, granted, I will agree that's a stronger thing to say, but it's not exactly that good of a response. Because again, the point in this is to say that God actually desires wicked men to turn from their evil ways. Um, according to Calvinism, he's already decreed that they won't. So if, he so if he actually desires them to be saved, why not just save them? He's completely sovereign according to Calvinism and irresistibly draws people to himself. He can do that. But according to this passage, he, he desires certain men to be saved. And I see this as an inherent contradiction in Calvinism because um, if you're a Calvinist, you have to say he decreed for those people who won't be saved to not be saved. But according to Ezekiel, he desires for them to be saved. So what yeah, do you do with that? One, yeah, one thing in there, too. I've actually talked with Calvinists, and they'll, they'll admit that, yes, this is a contradiction. Well, it's not, 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 maybe not necessarily like that bluntly, but... Uh, they will admit that, yeah, there is contradictions, but then they, they do the, well, I think it's a cop-out, the God's ways are higher than our ways kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll get back to you. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I forgot to do this at the beginning. Let me explain what, what Calvinists believe. So luckily for us, uh, Calvinists have it lined up for us pretty well in this fancy word called tulip. Uh, and I, to my knowledge, I don't think Arminians have a fancy word for the five points of Arminianism, but they're probably uh, out there. Yeah, it's probably something. Uh, but uh, the, the, the word is TULIP, and that stands for uh, the T is total depravity, which means that uh, man cannot be saved on his own will uh, to the extent that God has to save them. Uh, that's, that's a bad way to put it. To the extent where uh, we don't, we are, we're, not, we're unable to even make a choice to put our faith in Christ. God has to God has to make it and almost force us to make that choice. And so you see all this kind of goes together because uh, the you is unconditional election. So God, since we have he has to force us to make the choice, God has to unconditionally elect us. He doesn't choose people based off merit or anything like that. He chooses people uh, based off his own mercy, whoever he decides to have mercy on. Uh, that's unconditional election. The L uh, is limited atonement, which basically says that. Uh, Jesus didn't die for the whole world. He only died for the elect. Uh, uh, the elect being individuals who were predestined, who were unconditionally elected by God to be saved. Uh, and then I is irresistible grace. So that basically says that uh, God, in this process of salvation, when he, when he wants somebody to be saved, there is literally nothing they can do to say no to that, uh, to that, that call or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then the P is perseverance of the saints. And uh, this is, you know, the, the perseverance of the saints and total depravity is ones that most people would agree with to an extent. Uh, perseverance of the saints is basically that uh, he who starts a good work in you will finish it. 
and so it's it's basically that if you become a Christian, that you will persevere to the end, basically. Uh, so, anyways, that's the five points. That's the five points of Calvinism. Uh, I like it because it helps me summarize it up, <laughs> uh, and, and they all kind of roll together. And you'll see when you, if you start debating with Calvinists, they kind of they do they roll all these together, and when they get stuck on one. It seems like they jump to another. Uh, but anyways, let's talk about this one. So this one. Uh, what was that passage you just read, Austin? Let me write that down. That one was Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 21 through 23. Okay. Um, so this is Ephesians 2 is what I'm going to talk about next. So uh, in order for Calvinism to work, there has to, because the Bible says you know, many times that, we, we, he, that you know, God calls us to put our faith in him, um, in order for that to work, we actually have to have, because before, uh, according to Calvin's understanding, uh, that we are, we are in a state before we are saved where we could not, we'll never, ever do anything uh, to please God, which that's in the Bible. Uh, but the problem is Calvin has taken a step further and say to please God is also to put our faith in him. And, uh, and to do that, God basically has to, first of all, everything in the tulip has to come together for this one person that, wants, that, that he wants to be saved. Uh, but not only that, they they have to they have to argue for regeneration before faith. Uh, so a lot of times, as uh, uh, most Christians believe, that regeneration uh, comes after faith because once you put your faith in God and and you receive the Holy Spirit, it changes your heart and, and you're regenerated, you're changed. Uh, but they say that has to start before. That has to start before someone's saved. Otherwise, they'll never be able to be saved because they have to have this changed heart before they can even be saved. Uh, so it, it's kind of crazy, just to be honest. It's it's just crazy. And uh, if there's one thing that I think is clearly not in the Bible in Calvinism, it's regeneration preceding faith. Uh, the rest of them, I say, okay, you know, I, I can see how you can get that. I can see how you can get that. But regeneration before faith, I just don't think it's there. And I think if they're, they're reading too far into a lot of these passages. So you take, you take Ephesians 2, for example. Uh, Ephesians 2, this is starting in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Uh, the reason I bring this up, because honestly, when you read that, you say, okay, that seems like it couldn't go either way. But I had a friend of mine who we were talking about regeneration preceding faith. And he comes to this verse and say, see, we're dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our trespasses. There's nothing we can do to be saved. I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but the Bible doesn't say, though, that we are unable to put our faith in God. What the Bible says, though, is that we are unable to save ourselves. Basically, we are unable to be saved by our works. We are, the only way we are saved is through Christ's atonement. And uh, so that's very important, especially in this verse. And, and also, too, you know, Ephesians, they always love Ephesians 1 uh, while we're already here. <laughs> uh, 
But when people, we, we're not afraid to use the word the elect. <laughs> we just think that the elect are not talking about uh, individuals, but groups of people, groups of people. And that God elected and God made choices that have come into effect today, like the Gentiles being saved or, or uh, Jesus coming and dying on the cross and things like that. There's certain things that were uh, elected and, and God chose. And then there's groups of people, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, the whole world was elected and chosen uh, for salvation. So anyways, uh, so we're not afraid to use that word. But anyways, that's, that's the reason I wanted to bring up Ephesians 2 was because it's it's been used to kind of defend and a lot of passages are used this way to to defend regeneration preceding faith because it's a it's an inference i don't think it's a it's a blunt fact or a blunt statement in the bible it's, it's inference uh from the bible that you must be regenerated before faith because look it says you're dead in trespasses and you're, you're dead in your sins and there's nothing good you can ever do and things like that but it never says though Matter of fact, it says quite the opposite. It never says that you can't put your faith in Christ. Matter of fact, it calls us to put our faith in Christ time and time and time again. So, all right, so now we get to the next two. Calvinists, I, I think they hate that we use these so much, but let's get to these next two. Uh, yeah. You start with yours first, and I'll get mine ready. Yeah, so the next one is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, we'll start with verse 1. Uh, he says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, um, yeah. <laughs> This this passage to me seems uh, pretty pretty plain from the text that uh, Paul here is talking about uh, the desire that all people all men should be saved all individuals should be saved and I think that's a I think that's a thing that God does desire um, because He loves each and every person. Um, Calvinists understand this passage to my knowledge. They understand this to mean. Um, not all people, but all kinds of people. In other words, it's not referring to individuals, but it's referring to, uh, it's actually referring to groups. That God actually desires um, each member or members from each group to be saved. Um, and the reason why they, why they um, say this is because, obviously, if you, if you read the passage that says he desires all men to be saved, that kind of blows apart Calvinism. <laughs> but this would be an example, I would say, of, um, of reading a system back into a text rather than letting the text just be the text. Because the Bible doesn't say it was all kinds of men. It says all men. And furthermore, if you read it with the, uh, if you read it with the four kings and all who are in authority, if you read that in there to help it, then the Calvinist kind of has to interpret it, especially if it's talking about all kinds, they have to interpret it by that. And I, I don't think that rolls very well because then you're basically saying God especially, really, sovereignly elects the kings and the people in authority. And yeah, I don't think that's what that's saying. I think it's saying that God desires all men, but he also really desires the kings and the ones in authority because they're the ones that's actually in charge of the people. So yeah, that's my take on it. Yeah, and I actually uh, was getting some refreshment on 
how Calvinists respond. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, you covered it. It all comes down to what is, what is that? Who is the all? It's all it comes down to. And, you know, they talk about Greek and stuff, you know, whatever. But uh, it all really comes down to the context. Even if you know the Greek, it still comes down to the context of which, who the all is referring to. Which, that's funny because, believe it or not, I, I took some time to look this up in the Greek. <laughs> and it's um... – yeah, the the very most simple translation of that is just all, all people. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, yeah, it's really just a context thing. It's not even a, it's not really a translation thing, from to my knowledge. Uh, all right, so let me talk about this other one. It, it, it's funny because you know Calvinists will will because a lot of times Arminians will use this verse, First Timothy verse. Uh, the other one was Second Peter three nine. Uh, you know, in John three sixteen, they use these three verses, and as, as like a one liner, and I think they are one liners. Uh, and it, what, what's frustrating to me is uh, Calvinists really think that they have this uh, this simple understanding of Scripture, this simple interpretation of Scripture. Uh, yet they, it seems like they really have to jump some loops on these verses. Uh, so look at John three sixteen. Now John three sixteen, uh, I, I can give them a little leeway on this one. I'll explain why. Uh, it says, for God, well, we all know this verse probably, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. So let me stop right there. So world there is important. Uh, world can be referencing a lot of different things, but uh, it seems like you know, he's talking to Nicodemus and, and this this idea that the Gentiles could be saved. I mean, that was a very new teaching uh, for the Jews. Not that Gentiles didn't get saved in the Old Testament, uh, but now it was it was completely open to the Gentiles. So it was pretty. It was pretty new. And in Gentile, when you have Gentiles and the Israelites, you have the whole world. You know, there's no there's no third party or whatever. You know, uh, it's you have the Gentiles and you have the Israelites, and now you have the whole world. So he says he loves the whole world in this way. As a matter of fact, I listened to a few Calvinists, and they agree. Yeah, the whole world. He's talking about the whole world there. Some of them it says he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so here. Uh, a lot of times uh, we take that as uh, this This shows us that everyone has the ability, the whole world, everyone has the ability to believe in him. Uh, the only reason I will, I, I might give them some leeway here is because you could, uh, I don't think it's very a very strong stance, but I think you could still stick to this and say, well, see, it doesn't say that everyone can be saved. It says uh that he died for whosoever, whosoever will be saved. Uh, he gave his one only son that everyone, that the ones who believe in him will be saved. So, you know, you could, you could do that, but it doesn't seem to be the context. And when you, when you read through the whole scripture too, uh, you know, when you read through the whole scripture, you kind of see this God's desire, God's love for all people. You know, you like in like the Ezekiel passage, and he doesn't like bringing destruction on people, uh, things like that. So, Anyways, that's all we're going to talk about there. Like I said, I mean, we could go forever and ever. But I do want to, I do want to deal with this because uh, me and Austin both decided to do this. Calvinists love Romans 9. And I always wondered before, I said, why the heck don't more Arminians talk about Romans 9? Because it's not as major of a passage for Arminians as it is for Calvinists. For Calvinists, this is the go-to passage. You know, this is the main one. For us, it's just another another spot in the Bible where God says, hey, I'm saving both Jews and Gentiles. So let's look at that. If you want to look there with us, you can. Uh, Romans 9. 
Romans 9. I, wanna, I just want to, we don't have time to go through the whole chapter, but I just want to point out a few key verses. Because a lot of times people will read this, and I, I don't think it's because it's the simple understanding. I think it's because we kind of, we, we get this idea planted in our head, how Calvinists interpret this passage, or how Calvinists interpret a lot of this passage, uh, these passages. Uh, and so we get it in our head, and we think of it as a possibility, and then you read it and say, okay, that can make sense. You know, but I don't think it's the natural reading, and it's definitely not the, the contextual reading of, of the whole of Romans. Uh, so, Austin, you want to you, you open us up? I, I was going to start with verse 6, but you can start wherever if you want to do yeah. some context stuff or whatever. Yeah, let's, let's try to do just some real quick context stuff. So, um, first off, the author of, this, of Romans is Paul, right? And Paul is, I think for the most part, he's writing to Gentiles in Rome. But there's some actually really interesting historical stuff that happens. So um, in the 40s, in the 40s AD, um, the Roman emperor Claudius actually exiled Jews from Rome. But before he did this, the Jews were, not, were probably the first ones to actually build the Roman church. Now, Jews at that time, especially in Rome, they were mostly poor, and they probably were very, um, but they probably also spoke Greek because that was the dominant language in, the, in Rome. So the reason why I say this is important is because Claudius dies. The Jews are, the ruling is overturned. The Jews come back, right? So now you have this church that's a mixture of Roman and Gentile Christians who have very different ways of worshiping Jesus. So um, I actually believe that the big theme in Romans is Paul trying to say, he's trying to do some reconciliation between these two groups. And he's basically saying, hey, um, we are, you know, in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. We are all one covenant family who are under, who are under Christ's righteousness because of faith in Christ. But you can really see this as the letter progresses. I mean, um, for example, he reminds the Jews that they are just as damned as the Gentiles without Christ. This is Romans 1 through 3. Um, he reminds the Jews that it's uh, spiritual and not ethical descent from Abraham is what really matters. This is in Romans 4. And we're going to see this in Romans 9. Um, he talks about how the Jews are descended from the sinner Adam, just like the Gentiles. Um, that's in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Um, that the law does not justify Israel, 7 and 10. The Gentiles are grafted into Judaism. Um, so they're grafted into this uh, covenant relationship with God through Christ. That's Romans 11. Um, and that the Gentiles are to respect the practices of their Jewish brothers and sisters. That's in chapter 14. So putting all that together, and this is what I'm trying to say, is that putting all that together, we can see very clearly that Paul has a very distinct thing that he's trying to do in Romans, which is he's trying to say, listen, we are part of one big family. Um, and this is kind of, I think, the context of Romans 9, because Romans 1 through 8, Paul's very much like, hey, um, let me tell you how faith in Christ works to bring about this new covenant life. But then in Romans 9, you get him almost lamenting for his, unbelief, for his fellow Israelites who haven't accepted Christ. And the reason is because, as you just mentioned, verse 6, he's wrestling with this question of, um, but, is, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And he's, he's basically tackling the question of, well, if the Gentiles have been grafted into this new covenant, then what does Israel have to say then about the promises God made to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants? So. All right. So, 
and they they always accuse us of those other other verses we looked at, you know, just pulling them out of context and all this stuff. But man, just... <laughs> Romans nine, it, I've never seen somebody pull something out of context so so bad. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. I should have said that. That's not true. I, I have heard some really bad out of context things. Worse than that, for sure. I had so, to. <laughs> yeah, but I. It's it's definitely frustrating when they say we pull stuff out of context when it definitely seems you know they don't they don't understand the context around Romans nine. Um, yeah, I want to look at a few verses though, and what they do is they pull out these verses kind of like we did, you know these single verses. They pull out these single verses and say, "See, look, see, look, see, look," uh, like verse six. Uh, this is actually more of a context verse here. But it says, "Now it is not the, as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel." Uh, mm-hmm. So that goes back to the context, you know, and, and you know, Paul saying, well, okay, well, some of the some of the Israelites are not actually part of the promises anymore because they rejected the Messiah. And uh, Paul says that doesn't mean the <laughs> the word of God has failed. Uh, you got anything to add there before I go to the next one? Um, no, because we're not going to get uh, before we go on, though, I think we should say, like, we're not trying to give a detailed exegesis of Romans 9 here. So. For the Calvinists who are watching and going, this is really weak sauce. Well, it's not try- we're not trying to go hard on this passage. <laughs> yeah, we're out of time. Uh, all right, so verse 14. This is a big one here. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, Calvinists take this to mean to... This whole passage, all these verses we're talking about just about, they take it to mean it's talking about individuals who are, who are either uh, chosen, for, uh, chosen for salvation or chosen, chosen for damnation. Um, and, and here they, they use this verse to say, see, God has chosen to show mercy on these people, and he's chosen not to show mercy on these other people. And, uh, and it doesn't seem to be talking about individuals uh individual salvation here uh what you got on that austin well let me go down real quick to the verse because i just want to point something out yeah so um verse 15 paul's actually quoting back from to exodus 33 that's where he is getting that verse from and the reason why that's important is because here Moses is basically begging God not to wipe out the Israelites <laughs> because they've yeah. been worshiping the golden calf. And the reason why this is interesting is because um, Moses thinks God's about to just abandon his promises to his fellow people and all this other stuff. And <clears throat> the truth is, God says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to show mercy on you. And, Funny enough, uh, Moses here is getting shown mercy, not because of his uh, Jewishness or because he's a law keeper, which this is really the whole point. Um, but he's, getting, he's shown mercy because God is merciful. And it has nothing to do with his salvation. It has the fact that God is just being merciful and not actually going to wipe them off the face of the earth. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with salvation in, that, in the Old Testament context. Yeah. All right. Now, I just want to look at this last, these last few verses here about the potter and the clay. Uh, man, I completely skipped the... Yeah, you Esau. skipped J- Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Yeah, we got to read that one for sure. Uh, you want to take that one? Will serve... 
Yeah, it's verse 12 and 13. Not from works, but from one who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. So, oh yeah, you go ahead. You got a lot more. Okay. Studying than um, I do. Yeah, so uh, first off, Paul's actually making an argument. He's, um, you got to think in context of a Jew talking to him, right? So Paul is making the argument that... Um, God is sovereignly choosing, and by the way, whenever, again, we're not talking about individual election or individual salvation here, um, but God is sovereignly choosing how, who he wants to bring about his promises, who he wants to bring about his uh, declarations he's made to Abraham, and God, and this is basically God saying, if I want to do this from Isaac and Jacob's descendants and not Ishmael and Esau, that's my prerogative. That, that's just straight my prerogative. Um, I it's will also say that, that that quote that it comes from too is even even in the quote it comes from, there's not talking about individuals there either, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's from it's from Genesis chapter twenty two and Micah. Although I, I would have to find the Micah verse to be specific, but um, yeah. Genesis chapter twenty two though is is explicitly saying um, that there are two nations inside Rachel's womb, um, from Esau and Jacob. Jacob, of course, being the Israelites, and Esau's being the Edomites. So, yeah, they're, they're completely different nations. And by the way, God gives Esau's descendants land that, they, that he does not give to Israelites. He blesses Esau. So this doesn't sound like a person that God hates. In fact, right. it, the, the passage, uh, everybody except for Calvin has pretty much agreed that this is hyperbole here. It's trying to describe, it's trying to get Paul's essence of saying God has blessed Esau, not Esau, God has blessed Jacob and his descendants with the promise. He has not blessed Esau and his descendants with the promise. Yeah. Yeah, it could be hyperbole. It could also, it could also simply, you know, there, there's strong evidence. There's strong word study evidence that, uh, that it could mean just prefer. He prefers one over the other kind of thing. Yep. But uh, anyway, so let me look at the last, the last passage, the potter and the clay. Starting in verse 19, you will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? See, see, the reason I want to talk about this is because we'll tell Calvin this many times. He's like, well, uh, your your understanding of God is, is your God is not a loving God, the way you describe him. And they'll say, well, then they'll, they'll basically quote this passage to us and say, who the heck are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from uh, to make from the same lump a one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? <laughs> so, I mean, like I said, a lot of these passages, you could read them and think, oh, man, Calvinists do have some good points here. This is one of the few, and there's a few other ones, too. Uh, I would I would give a little more credit on, but uh, so what you got on that one, Austin? Yeah. Um, so here's the thing: when we go look up back up at Pharaoh, because this is there's a context with Pharaoh there. <clears throat> it talks about God hardening. Well, this passage doesn't actually talk about God hardening his heart, but elsewhere Paul talks about it. Um, he says that God raised Pharaoh up for this specific purpose. Um, this again isn't talking about salvation. <laughs> It's talking about um, purpose. It's, talk, it's actually talking about purpose and vocation. So here, um, why does God raise Pharaoh up? It's not to, um, 
again, in, whether it's not about his individual salvation, it's to show his glory to the Israelites and saying, I'm going to be faithful to you and bring about my promises to you, and I'm just going to use Pharaoh as an instrument to show this. And this is what this is talking about here. It's talking about pottery that's used for a specific purpose and then pottery that's used for another purpose to bring about certain points and purposes of God. But it's not talking about salvation here. It's talking about, I've, I've um, for example, if we take this in the context of all of Romans 9 and 11, <clears throat> the Jews, his original purpose was to bring about the promises of God fulfilled to Abraham, have hardened their hearts, and God has hardened their hearts further. So now, um, instead of them receiving the promises, God is going to use their disobedience and their hardening in order to bring about the Gentile salvation. You see how this works? God can choose how he wants to use the pottery. Right. And that's the thing, too, is a lot of times uh, Calvinists will say that Arminians deny sovereignty. We don't deny sovereignty. Uh, we, maybe we don't define it the same way or whatever. We don't understand it the same way. But we, we definitely believe in sovereignty. We believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing. He's in control and things like that. And, and uh, nothing would happen unless God allowed it to happen, you know. I got a bunch of heat one time. I put a post on Facebook about God allowing COVID to happen because I don't say God calls COVID to happen. I say he allowed it to happen because he can stop whatever he wants to stop. He can start whatever he wants to start. Uh, I got a lot of heat for that. Uh, but, you know, we, we definitely believe in sovereignty. And that's probably the that, – that's a good thing that Christians can, can get out of this passage is that God is sovereign. And he has mm -hmm. decided, hey, I'm going to use Israelites for this purpose. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer salvation to the Gentiles. You know, mm -hmm. well, Austin, we have gone over our 30 minutes, but honestly, we're already only by, only by 11 minutes, bro. I think I we're know. good. I really want to, I really <laughs> want to do the philosophical stuff. We can make uh, a part two. I don't know, man. I just, let's just go ahead and do it. You want to go ahead and do it or no? Uh, yeah, I don't got to be anywhere until 1040. So I'm good. All right. Um, so <laughs> man. So uh, I hate this. This isn't really the, the – this is a major, major issue with Calvinism, but I don't think it, it – it's not the bottom line uh, for Austin or, my, or I. You know, it's, we thought Scripture said that people were predestined. We would, be, believe, we would, we would say people were predestined, you know. Uh, but we also think that God, not only is he giving us a Scripture, which we don't believe teaches that, he also gives us reason, and he gives us our minds. And especially as Christians, you know, we have, we even, it says, the Bible says we have a new mind, a new mind that is influenced by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I think if we reasonably think Calvinism out, it does not work. Uh, but the, uh, uh, I'll get to that here in just a second. So I'm trying to think where to start, Austin. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, I mean, I would just say that it, I would just start off with the fact that if you have a God who is love, and that is the main way that scripture talks about God, that's like his core, his core character. And that makes sense if he's a Trinity, because in order to love, there has to be an object of love, right? There has to be a relationship. You can't just like love something that isn't there. Um, so I would say that um, in order to truly have love, you have to be able to freely give and receive that love. And for Calvinists, this is a problem because um, in order to love God back, God basically has to go and like mind, like, 
<laughs> he has to like go and like just r totally change us in order to get us to love him in order to make us love him back it's a it's a forced love and that in itself is a contradiction because love itself cannot be forced yeah and what's interesting and uh you know i don't i want to give confidence their credit too you know what's interesting is confidence the way the way they describe it they don't they don't uh the ones i've talked to at least i don't know if some people do or not but the ones I've talked to, they don't actually deny free will. Uh, what they say, it's almost like they, they, they deny libertarian free will, but they, they basically redefine free will to be, uh, be us choosing, uh, us having the ability to choose what our desires calls us to choose. And, but, but God yeah. is the one that puts that desire in us. And so ultimately it's God causing us to make these decisions. But, What's what what's what's interesting to me with the philosophical argument is when you really think about uh, because they have no problem if you if you listen I've listened to a lot of Calvinist preachers and things uh, and, and I, I guess we all kind of do as well but uh, they always you know they'll focus on the good part of it man isn't it great to be to be one of the ones that God showed mercy to isn't it great isn't it great I'm like but yeah what about the other people who God has predestined not to love you know there's there's not a single ounce of love in that not a single ounce. You know, and I think that's where Calvinism truly fails. Uh, and I think yeah. that's why, that's probably why it frustrates me the most is because it's painting this, this awful picture of God to say, okay, yeah, sure. If you're one of the elect, sure. You better feel special. You're, you're especially loved by God. But if you're not, there's no reason for you to feel special. You should never feel loved by God because uh, apparently God doesn't love you. <laughs> he loves yep. these other people more and he's trying to teach them more things about him through not loving you. Yeah. Which is which is totally the opposite of Ezekiel eighteen twenty one through two. Okay, um, and John three sixteen and all the other passages we mentioned earlier. Yeah, I know they uh, have a heyday with that. I mean, nobody's going to say no cows can say, "Well, yeah, we that's what we believe." You know? Yeah, I think um, I gave this analogy one time to, and, and and I think it's a good analogy. I got told it wasn't a good analogy, but you know, if you're Calvinist on the comment section, maybe you can explain why it's not a good analogy. But I. <laughs> I think it's a good analogy. Um, so I like to imagine Calvinism as this. So let's say there's a judge, right? And this judge is convicting 10 people. We'll say he's convicting 10 people. Um, all 10 people have a mental disorder, right? They have this disorder where they truly desire to kill people. They really want to kill people. And they feel like killing people is probably even a good thing. Now, the judge has this super serum. He has this super antidote that basically allows him to, uh, it, that basically like transforms the people. Like they, it gets rid of their mental disorder and they stop thinking that killing people is okay. And they start believing that, you know, like every other normal person that killing's not okay. Um, and he gives it, he has enough. Here's the thing. He has enough that he could give it to all 10 people. Okay. But instead he chooses to give it to five of the people. The other five he condemns as hardcore criminals and sends them to jail. And then he pats himself on the back for sending them to jail. And then he pats himself on the other side for, for actually curing the people with the serum. This is what it sounds like to me. This is what Calvinism sounds like to me. God gets glory for sending those to hell, whom sends to hell, even though he could have saved them. And he gets glory for the saved because he cured them of their sin problem. Yeah, that's what's weird to me is their understanding of glory. Uh, you know, they, 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 they believe it to be almost like God is a selfish God who he's just here to glorify himself. He, he doesn't really care that much about us. 
that's probably a little too that's probably a little too uh, yeah well, but probably it, a little too hard but you know they that's that's what they do is they they say that because when they have I think I think they know I I told Calvin before I said man I think you know what you believe is not true and I think you know it contradicts that you can't say God predestined everything and then you can turn around and say well God didn't predestine evil things you know or or he doesn't call evil things you know but the Westminster Confession of Faith bro I'm <laughs> sorry I'll stop yeah I'll stop. <laughs> But but their idea of glory, it's not. It, see, it, to to me, and I think scripturally, the God's idea of glory is is treating people well, letting letting uh, loving people, loving people enough to ha- let them have the the free choice, and in that, and through the grace and mercy and love that He shows the whole world, in that, people will glorify Him. He He will just. <laughs> automatically be glorified because of it because of how much we know he cares about us and i, I wanted to add this too because i heard i heard I, I like this this point from uh michael brown in their debate was you know i think i think calvinists aren't don't believe god is sovereign enough they think that god uh cannot it can no longer be sovereign if we actually do have libertarian free will where yeah. As as Arminians, we believe actually we have free will. We make free choices. We can even decide whether or not to be a Christian or not, uh, according to the scriptures. We can decide to put our faith in Him or not, and uh, and we have a free choice. Yet God still is going to make His purposes come about. I mean, He knows the choices. He knew the choices the Romans were going to make. He knew that if Jesus came and as soon as He started His ministry, He was only going to have three years to do His ministry. You know. Yeah, it's pretty. I, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I would. I would even say it's more impressive if God can still accomplish His purposes through the through the free acts of libertarian yeah. free creatures that He doesn't have to. And and I call and I know Calvinists really hate this, but this is the literally the only way I can see it. And for the record, this is the funny. This is another contradiction. Um, me, if I'm not understanding Calvinism properly here, according to Calvinism, God predetermined that I wouldn't understand. Calvinism. Yeah. Okay. That's, right. that's that's the final one. I'll stop. Um, but anyways, it's it it's a micromanaged sovereignty. That's what it is. God it has to yeah. micromanage, and I don't. I think God's just a bit more sovereign than that. I whenever whenever uh, we played. Um, oh my gosh! I'm not going to bring that up. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, we don't, don't need to talk about that. I, mean. <laughs> I was going to say there are certain games though that you can play where. Um, you know, people are making free choices, but you know where the game's going to go. <laughs> you know how it's going to end. Right. And if humans can do that, I don't understand why God can't do that. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable to see what God can do. Just the fact that we, you know, we have free choices. But I, I always like this, too. I like it when uh, an adult with kids brings it up, which I haven't. I haven't met too many with, with grown kids, you know. I'm like, okay, you tell your kid that you're, gonna, you're going to force them uh, to – make whatever decisions they're going to make. And you turn around and tell me that that kid's going to say you're loving. But I tell you what, though, I've, I've met some, I've met some parents and, and who, who, you know, they don't just, they're not like legalists. They don't just boss their kids around, you know, there's boundaries and rules and whatever, but they, they respect them and they say, Hey, listen, this is why this is wrong. This is why you shouldn't do that. And it's almost like then they're, they're, they're make, helping them to make the personal decision to make the decision that ultimately the parent wanted them to make in the first place, you know? And I think that's what God does a lot too, is God, I mean, he, 
he draws us to us. You know, he's got his glory. He's got, he's got his mercy, his grace, and it draws the whole world to him. You know, it's but, it's just it's resistible though. It's not irresistible. Yeah, it's resistible. That's for dang sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I would be interested since you brought up kids. I know we're we're. I probably need to get off at some point, but um, I know you got some uh, visitors that you got coming up. I would actually be interested to hear. You know. A Calvinist who's trying to explain to their kids salvation, like they can't actually look at the kid and go, well, God has uh, elected you for salvation because you don't know. You have no idea. Praise God, so my the, kid's going to hell, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like God gets glory for your kid going, uh, okay. Yeah, we'll stop. We'll stop. But I am actually curious on that one. I'm, I'm very curious on that one. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff I, I just wonder, you know, what about what about uh, you know psychology and how that plays into into things and it, it, there's all kinds of ways it can hurt. Uh, that's what I want to end with. Uh, I want to end with how I believe Calvinism can hurt and why I think so many people are Calvinists, um, or both of us. Yeah, I, I mean Calvinism it's pretty obvious. Like like we just showed in our philosophical talk, uh, you know, Calvinism does not portray a loving God. And it's putting this this idea of God out there in our in our churches and even uh, on the mission field. It's putting this idea of God that uh, God is not loving. You know, that's why I wonder how these guys. I mean, I guess they're presuppositionalists when it comes to ap apologetics. But you know, when we do apologetics and we're defending the faith, it's like, man, God loves you enough, or He's not going to force you to make your decision. He wants you to He wants you to freely make the decision to yeah. come to Him. Now He's given you grace and mercy. He's shown. You know, he's showing these things to you, and if you seek him, he'll show it even clearer to you, you know? Yeah. Uh, what, what you got on that? Well, why, why, what, what's, if you had to pick something out that, that, you know, was one of the biggest issues or biggest flaw, or not, not issues or flaws, but consequences, Calvinism? Yeah, I, I will be honest. Um, there's one that, for me, this is a logical thing, and I know most Calvinists can just say, well, we are told to do this in Scripture. Um, and, that, that, and that might just be the best defense for it. I don't know. I have a hard time, though, um, under Calvinism, understanding why anybody would actually come into evangelism. I mean, let's face it, it. That person's going to be saved no matter if you go and do the evangelism. If we're taking Calvinism to its logical conclusion. Right. So... Yeah, yeah, I think that's a logical conclusion. But I will say this though on that, uh, give Calvinists a little a little space. Yeah, <laughs> they they uh, they. Yeah, it's like I heard a debate one time, and they got done. And and the bottom line is, with a lot of a lot of Calvinists, now I think it's mostly the the pastors and the leaders and the theologians understand it better, maybe. But now the people in the churches are are slowly and gives them fuel to say, I don't need to evangelize. You know, God will bring them to me or whatever. I think it comes out more in the churches and in, in the congregations, uh, but they do. And if, if, so how they hold it, they're going to say the same thing as us. They're going to say, well, let's go. We need to go onto all the world. I mean, they still accept some of these, the basic Bible principles that we need to go into all the world and we're going to go share the gospel and, and things like that. And so half the time, it's almost like we're, we're both doing the same thing. Now, I couldn't pastor. I don't think I could youth pastor with a Calvinist associate pastor or whatever. Uh, because we would disagree on theology and, and how we preach and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but I could do evangelism with the Calvinists because we both want people to be right. saved. 
It's just right. they think it's predestined. I think it's based on this person's choice. The only difference would be is when I would go, I would I would make sure the environment is – the environment means a lot to me, more than it's going to mean to a Calvinist. A Calvinist just says, well, I'll just preach the word, and they're, they're, the word and God will speak to them through his Holy Spirit just through the word. Where I think the, the environment, the your, your tone, the way you look, you know, who you're with, where the location is, whatever, all that stuff affects people's receptivity to the gospel. Yeah. <clears throat> but the last thing I want to talk about, though, is why I think so many people are Calvinists. Uh, and and uh, if you'll notice, people will say people are not Calvinists because of the philosophical arguments for Calvinism. That's for sure. Uh, not that they don't have philosophical arguments, but it's not it's not convincing. Uh, they what they'll say though, in my experience, is they'll say I'm a Calvinist because I just believe that's what the Bible teaches. And you get you know yeah. you get two thousand years, well not two thousand years. I, I mean I mean late Augustine maybe you start seeing Calvinism, uh, but you know you get you know you get all these years of Calvinism building up. And so you kind of have something to go off of. You have other people you can you can relate to. Same thing with the Orthodox Church. They say, well, we follow the secession. You know, it's kind of funny. They hate the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. And most Calvinists think those are people aren't even Christians, you know. <laughs> but they have this same kind of thing going with Calvinism, where we follow the, the traditions of men through this Calvinism thing. Uh, but I think the, the main reason that so many people are becoming Calvinists, especially young people, is because, uh, people like me and Austin, you know, we want to we want to know the word. We want to believe what the word has to say. We want the the Bible to be our supreme authority. And you know, and, and a lot of times we there there's people who aren't Calvinists that really stray. I mean, really stray so far away from the word of God that it it throws people off. It draws people away. Pushes people away from them. And so then you kind of have these far radical. I don't even know to call them Arminians, but you got these far radical people who don't really respect the Bible as much, who aren't Calvinists, and that's kind of how people view them. Like Andy Stanley, you know, he's he's very topical preacher and things like that. I think he's a Christian, but Calvinists don't even think he's a Christian, you know. And people like Andy Stanley, who is an Arminian, who doesn't you know believe in in the five points of Calvinism or whatever, you know, they're not going to respect somebody like him like they would somebody like James White on YouTube, because James White, you know, he's always talking about the Bible and all this stuff. But I've mm -hmm. met tons of pastors. I mean, Adrian Rogers was a great pastor. Billy Graham was a great evangelist. I mean, uh, so many other pa – my pastor here at this church, I mean, a great pastor. He doesn't believe in all five points of Calvinism, Calvinism at least, you know. <clears throat> so I think that's what it is. I think, I think young, young men and women just want to be – they want to be focused solely on the Bible, and they believe with all their heart, or, or somebody's telling them that this is the simple understanding of the Bible. But – uh, I'm, I'm pleading with people all the time to say, listen, there is a way, and I think it's, it's a better way to read the Bible, respect the Bible, have it as your supreme authority, and still not be a Calvinist. Matter of fact, I think if you're actually going to do that, you shouldn't be a Calvinist. <laughs> yeah, there are. Yeah, I think also what makes it so, <coughs> what makes it so um, appealing is that the system is very well connected. Like the system of Calvinism, as far as like how you read scripture is very well connected. And um, yeah. I think, I think that draws people in too, that it's so well connected. They can, they can, um, because in that system, you can harmonize almost anything. And what I will say to that, because you mentioned um, Bible, you know, there are very good Bible scholars and theologians who are not 
of the Calvinist tradition who take scripture very, very seriously. You mentioned Michael Brown already. Um, I'm going to throw in, um, you know, Dr. Craig Keener, who's one of my professors here, has loved scripture. The man wrote, good Lord, a three, yeah, three volume commentary on Acts. It's like humongous. Yeah. Um, Norman Geisler is good. Norman Geisler is good. Uh, N.T. Wright. You know, there, there, there's so there's so many people that don't take the Calvinist tradition and are considered top Bible scholars who love God's yeah. word and they, you know. And I would um, imagine, I would imagine for you, it's, it's I probably run into a lot more Calvinists than you do, uh, given my denomination. You know, Baptists we're we're pretty well known for our Calvinists. <laughs> Matter of fact, Baptists started as Calvinists. Uh, luckily, they're not anymore. You know, not not entirely at least. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we probably run into a lot more than you. It's funny though, the, the two guys you just mentioned, both of them, they, the Calvinists think are heretics. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they think but, of Keener. I need to figure that out. <laughs> but uh, you got we got Jerry Vines. Jerry Vines is not a Calvinist. Uh, uh, Lynn Turner, he's a little smaller guy. He's not a Calvinist. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of these older guys. Adrian Rogers was not a Calvinist. Uh, I just read a commentary by uh, Grant Osborne. He's not a Calvinist. Uh, Gary Burge, I don't believe he's a Calvinist, although he's he's kind of he's kind of on the fence, I think, in some of his in, on his John commentary. You know, there are, there are a lot of solid uh, Leighton Flowers. You know, a lot of Calvinists don't like him, but uh, he's he's a strong, he's a biblically biblically centered man uh, that mm-hmm. tries his best to focus on the Bible. So the stuff's out there, you know. And so don't think, you know, well. I, and the, the temptation will be there because you'll probably run across some Calvinists. And, and uh, to be honest, they're, they're repeating a lot of the same stuff that's been said for a couple thousand years, you know, just like the Orthodox churches. And so it's, it's, you got, it seems like they know their stuff a little more, but like I said, they're just repeating the, the same stuff they've heard uh, many times. Uh, yep. Yeah. It, anyways, we can go on and on about that, but uh like I said, we, we both think there, there's really good reasons. I don't even think me and Austin are on the same page with sovereignty. Uh, but we both think there's really good reasons to, to not be Calvinist. And that's what's interesting with us because it's almost like we're – I feel like we're always going to be on the search to understand uh, God's sovereignty, whereas Calvinists are like, we've already got it figured out. <laughs> yeah. We know what happens. He predestines everything, you know? Yeah. And I would – I, I think that one thing we need to be very clear, and I, and I, I want to say this, um, this kind of gets a little bit into hermeneutics, but, kind of, but I think we probably should wrap up after this. Um, you really, for those who really want to study scripture well, and maybe maybe this can be another video that me and you could do with hermeneutics, but you, you really yeah. should learn how to do good hermeneutics. And by good hermeneutics, I don't mean starting with Martin Luther and John Calvin. I mean starting with the first century audience in the context of the passages. So, yeah, that, that's, that's the last thing I'll say. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. But, uh, all right, well, I think we beat this horse enough. There's plenty horse more to be beaten. said about it. Like <laughs> I said, I mean, there, there's debates all over YouTube. And if anybody wants some links or whatever, I can send them to you. And listen, if you're watching this, you know, if you're a Calvinist, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, these guys did an awful job of representing me. Uh, but I just want to say, you know, I'm, I'm open and I'm really trying to get this Grace Bond Ministries thing going. So uh, if any of y'all ever want to get on here and, and talk about, you know, a passage or something with me or 
or uh, the philosophical thing. I really think uh, I'll put that challenge out there. I think Calvinism is the, their weakest spot is philosophy, uh, very weak in philosophy. So if you ever want to talk about that, I'd definitely be down to do that. Uh, or if you want to talk about something else and listen to, I, I have my email, uh, gracebondministries at gmail.com. Uh, so if you have any questions or, or anything like that or something you want to add, uh, you know, email me or comment. I'm going to put this on YouTube. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you can also comment or whatever. And, you know, I'm not going to have people on my on here that I don't know, you know. Uh, but if I know you and you want to talk about something, it doesn't have to be Calvinism. We can talk about whatever. If you want to talk about something, let's do it. Uh, but, yeah, I appreciate everybody watching. I hope you enjoyed this. And uh, uh, I know we probably we probably got a little rude there at certain points, but uh, we tried our best. I know we, we both tried our best to really try to be humble about this. And, hey, we can end it on this. We, we both could be wrong. <laughs> and I'm, I'm totally fine with that, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm just hoping if I am wrong that I'm one of the elect, but. Uh, <laughs> you and me uh, both, brother. Me, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess, the, I guess everybody that's Calvinist is hoping they are the elect, but. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I don't have any next videos planned right now, but I'll keep you all posted on that. Uh, also, just to let you know, it's voting time. Time to vote. If you haven't voted yet, you need to go vote. Uh, unless you're, you know, in seminary somewhere, you need to go home and vote right now. <laughs> uh, but voting is definitely important. It's, it's a crazy time, crazy year. Uh, I've talked about it a little bit, but uh, we all definitely need to vote. Get out there and vote and uh, represent our country well. Uh, anyways, thank you for watching. Um, we love everybody. Chris, uh, Calvinist, non-Calvinist, <laughs> Christian, non-Christian, whatever. We love you all. Uh, we, we, our intention was not to upset you. Our intention was to simply uh, share our thoughts about Calvinism and why we are not Calvinist. Uh, but anyways, I hope you found this uh, interesting, helpful, beneficial, or uh, maybe, maybe it's something to help you fall asleep tonight. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, uh, have a good day. And like I said, email Grace Bond Ministries or anything. If you want to you get on here and talk about something, let me know, and uh, we'll make it happen. But thank you, Austin, for joining. And, Thanks for uh, having me, man. Yeah, that was fun. I'm glad we got to do it. And I'm sure me and Austin will be doing something again here soon. All right. See you, man. All right. See you, man.